normally when I am doing the scripture reading, I have like two pages with 15 tribes and seven kings and all these bizarre names. And today we've got one verse. And it's John chapter 8, verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it is um, my great honor and privilege to invite Michael to come up and speak to us today, to share a little bit about his life and who he is. Now, there's a couple of things that you need to know. One, and Michael, you never have to come all the way up here if you don't feel comfortable. You can stay wherever you want, brother. Yeah. Um, Our first Sunday here was Michael's first Sunday here. He walked in and he sat down, uh, and it was amazing uh, to have him here, and we were excited to have him. And we have watched him grow. We have watched him be healed by God from cancer. And so we're excited about that as well. And so um, when we were talking and he was talking to me about his story and his life and was saying, I'd like to share it sometime, I I said, well, tell me kind of a little bit about your life. And he kept mentioning the word light. And I said, it just so happens, you know, how God works, that we're doing a sermon series on the I am statements. And in one of those I am statements, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And I think it would be a great privilege for us to hear your story as it talks about Jesus is the light of the world. And so Michael is going to come and share with us his story today. So Michael, let me come down there or you can come up here and let me pray for you. Um, yeah, I think I'm on. Yep. Um, well, I'm Michael, and I'm going to tell you about flick, flickering lights in my life. Um, I was born in the 60s, and I had a mother and two daughters, but I grew up with uh, two daughters, two sisters. It's because I've got two daughters. Two sisters I grew up with, and uh, I didn't have a father figure in my life at all at that stage and uh, my mother used to take us always every Sunday to the Church of England and do the thing and I'd go to Sunday school and then in 1966 my mother met these three people that came into the house and was told about Christianity and how Christianity really you don't need to confess things and do things like that so my mother said we didn't have to go to church anymore which to me was fantastic because <laughs> Sunday school was so boring, you know. And uh, so, but I noticed with all my friends at school, when I was first started school, they all had their dads at their sports carnivals and, and I didn't have a dad. Like he was overseas doing whatever he was doing and my mother decided that he wasn't right for her life and so they divorced. Then in 1970, uh, sorry, in 1968, 
I received a gift and it came from Vietnam and it was a bamboo motorbike, Harley Davidson made from bamboo, it's a little tiny thing. And it was from my father. So I really thought, this is great. It's the only thing I've ever had from my dad, you know, and I took it everywhere with me and, and played with it. And then in 1970, my father came back from Vietnam and uh, I wanted to go and live with my dad, not knowing anything about my dad, but wanting to go and live with him. This concerned my mother and my sisters, but my mother never stopped me going. But what she did do was when she packed my clothes, she put the, her phone number in there and said, I want you to ring me once a week, plus a book, a diary. And she said, from this day onwards, write a diary every day about your life, what's going on. So I went with my dad and started living with my dad. And I thought he would be great and he would come to my sports and he would back me up. And um, what, I, what really happened was at the age of eight and a half, I was at primary school selling marijuana for my father on a corner post. And I had to stand there each recess and at lunchtime and afternoon and after school and before school. And I was selling it to the teachers. I was selling it to uh, kids' parents. It was just the way life was. And um, so that's was my life, so sort of what I had to do. And sometimes when I wasn't there, my father would yell at me and scream at me and things like that. And I'd have to make sure all the money was there. And then he used to get violent with me. Um, I never really got a hide and I was more... He bashed me. He used to bash me if I didn't do things. He'd, I've had broken jaws and broken ribs. And at the age of 11, I started to rebel. And I was ringing my mum all that time once a week and that was the light. I talk about there's this flickering light that kept coming. And the flickering light, I think was Jesus now, but at that time it was through my mother. She was like my one bit of loveness I had, I guess, the love in my life. Like. And then my father decided to put a needle in my arm at the age of 11 of heroin and that really changed my life because it became my wife. I, there's a, on the internet, there's a poem called Miss Heroin, and that was me. I was married to heroin and loved it, and my father just kept bashing me. And then when that sort of failed, he started to threaten me with killing my mum and my two daughters if I said anything to anyone. <coughs> Things like that were going on in my life, and uh, that was hard. So... I, one day, you know, I, I realised, like, with this flickering light of my mother, that she'd always give me passages of the Bible and I'd be writing my diaries. And I used to drop my diaries once they were full at a friend's house who'd given them to my mother to look after. And that kept going. And uh, then he started wanting me to go in this car and we'd be going across to the eastern states, back and forth, back and forth, and doing these drug runs. And... Uh, like, in, my, in that early time, like, there was many times I realised now that God was putting his hand in front of me. When I was 11, I wagged school one day with me mate. And we went to an old mine. And all these sticks of jollignite were there and fuses. So we rigged up this old mine and only stood from here to across the road away, so, and let it go. 
And as me and my friend were standing there, we could hear bits of metal zinging past us like this because we weren't far enough away. And when it, the dust had settled, we were still standing there and there wasn't a scratch on us. But the mine was gone. And uh, at first I used to think, oh, gee, that was lucky and things like that. But I sort of realised that maybe God's hand was there because my mother kept putting these verses once a week into my life. So as time went on, I kept going back and forth, still having this flickering light come through to me. And one time I, my father almost killed me and put me in the car and I had this heroin addiction. I was getting bashed by my bi biological father and things weren't really good. It looked like I was, you know, pretty close to death almost, wanting to commit suicide, wanting all kinds of, just wanted to be out of this life. And I went to Melbourne and I met this man and these four people on each side of him and he's seen all these bruises over me and he said to me, you don't have to go back home anymore. He says, you can stay with me. And the relief, and, and it's hard to believe that the relief was like, I think God put this man there to save me from that. And then the first thing he did was he rang my mother and my mother was going to come over and I said, no, no, I don't want my mum here. I, don't, I, didn't want, I was ashamed because I didn't want my mum to know I was a heroin addict. So I said to my mum, can I stay here in Melbourne with this man? And she said, if you want to, Mike. Because I think she, whether she knew or not, I suppose she did if she read my diaries, I had troubles with heroin. And so I started working for this man. And they were uh, a criminal set people. They were very criminally minded in Melbourne and that. And I, at the age of 15, I got given a false licence and that and started doing that drug runs from the east coast to the west coast and back. By the time I was um, 17, and I'm, I know I keep saying this, but you've got to remember my mum was ringing me once a week, so the little light was coming through about Jesus and things like that and telling me different psalms. But by the time I was 17, I decided that I didn't want to do drug runs anymore. I wanted to retire. So after a two-year plan... We were doing, I was going to rob Armaguard, basically. We put a two-year plan into position, me and four other friends. And uh, I guess the reason I'd done that was, but it, I was, my heroin addiction was costing me more and more uh, each time. And I didn't know how to stop it. And I was hiding it from the person I was living with, which was my boss. I was hiding it from my parents or my mum. Uh, but by that time, my mum had remarried and I had a stepdad. And uh, so, needless to say, we did rob Armaguard, but we didn't get far because my mate, after two years of practising this same run, accidentally went down the wrong street and we ended up in a cul-de-sac. <laughs> so, <laughs> what do you do? <laughs> you know, like... So, me, I was... Absolutely, you know, I was, by this time when we'd done that, I was 19, I had, it was costing me $1,100 a day in heroin. And that was back in the um, 1980s, you know, that was very early. And I was getting sicker and sicker and not noticing it. People around me were noticing it, but I wasn't noticing it. 
So we win this cul-de-sac and I, I realised my insanity, what was happening in my insanity because why this light, being my mother, each week was coming through. I, I was, I don't know what was going on in my life, but I started shooting at the helicopters and I started shooting at anyone that was around. And I said to my four friends, I don't know about you, but I'm going to make a run for it. So I jumped out of the car with a sack full of money. <laughs> it's just stupid now, but I'm running. I don't know where I'm running to. And I was, I, I, I don't know how many movies you've watched, but if you've ever seen Rambo and that, and he gets shot 35 times and keeps running, I got shot once through my knee here. And I don't care how big or how tough you are, straight on the ground. And I realised, wow, that was really stupid, Michael, because this man could have shot me anywhere and he had the right to shoot me wherever he wanted to shoot me because I was shooting at helicopters and whatever else. So that happened. We got caught. And um, we were over here. Oh, we were done federally under the federal offences, but over here they don't have a federal prison. So we were 20 years of age and um, corruption was rifle through the place and uh, with the cops and with the prison guards, the screws and, and things like that. So when I finally went to... My mother seen me again in 1982. I hadn't seen her since 1970. And in 1982, just as I was about to go into court, she was there. And uh, I hugged her and I just said, well, go home, Mum. I don't want you to come and see me as a caged animal. So I stood up in the court and I weighed about 41 kilos. That's how sick I was and I didn't realise how sick I was. And um, the judge noticed it and said, look, we can't put him in jail yet. We need to send him to a rehab. So I was put into a forced rehab for three months and uh, put on some weight and trying to help me get over this addiction. And uh, so when I finally went to court, I was given eight years and at the prison at the back here is where I went. That um, was a real eye-opener for me. <laughs> um, I don't know why. <laughs> I always had this criminal mind, even though I had this once a week light coming through being my mother. I just had this criminal mind and when I got to jail, they said, oh, we have an opening in the kitchen as the baker. And I went, ah, oh, baker, baker, alcohol, yeast, friends. That's how my head used to think, you know? So alcohol, I'll make lots of alcohol. So, I was in this prison and believe me, it's a shame they've changed the prison a bit where they put in the youth hostel and that because it really was a very cold, dark, dingy place, a place you didn't want to be. There wasn't the luxury that they have now of TVs and, and radios and that. You were told when to stand, you were told when to sit, you were told when to eat, you were told when you would go to the toilet, you were told when you had to get up, you were told everything. Everything was by the book, by the screws being screws of prison officers. So I made this alcohol and a pastor was preaching 
and I used to just ignore him and that. And uh, I was making all these friends because I kept giving this alcohol. And this pastor, I don't know what, he said to me, he said, you know, he says, do you think you can learn from this experience of being in jail that you won't come back? And I says, I'll never come back to jail again. I said, but I'm not really interested in what you had to talk about. And that was the first time I'd ever seen a pastor, not a priest or, a, or anything like that. It was just a pastor, a guy who belonged somewhere. So, <coughs> needless to say, I got caught making alcohol and um, as I got caught making this alcohol, there was leaders coming out of the air vents and everything. So I got an extra six months on my sentence and I got 30 days chogi. Uh, chogi is when you get locked in a cell, a single cell without a mattress. Um, you're fed on a plastic plate with plastic fork and spoons and knives, a glass of water, and you're only allowed her outside once uh, for one hour each day. And uh, there was no toilets or anything in there. There was just a bucket, and that's what you had to use. And that was the first time, and I asked this screw that was, or prison officer that was putting me in the cell, can I have something to read? And he threw me the Bible. So I looked at the Bible and thought, yep. Okay, so I read the Bible and I read it every page. But to me it was just, I didn't see the light. I was just looking at it as a book. And I had heroes in there, you know, Job and, and things like that. But I liked Kings 1 and Kings 2 because that was all about war and blood and guts and that's how I was in this <laughs> criminal world. And yeah, you know. So as I got out of that and I kept doing my jail time and this pastor coming to see me and my mother used to ring once a week and she'd sent this prayer around the world to pray for me because I think she obviously had read my diaries and that she knew what was happening with me and in, while I was in jail I was still able to get heroin because you just needed to know the right people. As I said, corruption was rifle right through the place. So um, my mum, once a week, would read out a letter that she'd get from someone overseas. And she even told me about three marriage proposals. I think they thought they could save me, but no, it wasn't going to happen. So I, I got talking to this pastor there about the book of um, the Bible and that, and I just said, oh, you know, why, why do you believe that? Why do you believe this? Because in my head, I used to believe when Jesus fed the 40,000 or 5,000, I was thinking maybe he gave a acid, LSD, and he tricked all the people into believing they were eating. And that's how my head used to think. I, I, you know, because I didn't have that relationship with the light being Jesus, just my mother and her love and that. So eventually I got out of where I was in Fremantle and um, I went back to doing the same thing, drug run, east to west, but I got out in, I went in in 80, yeah, 80, 83, 84 and I got out in 92 and in, in, in those eight and a bit years, things had changed in my, you know, there was big block 
mobile phones or something and everything was just different for me and like I didn't know what was happening even the drugs were different and this time when I was using I wasn't the happy sort of person I used to be I was angry and getting angrier and people who owed me money I would shoot in the shoulder or I'd shoot them in the leg and I didn't care and then I'd feel bad and take them to the doctor you know it was just this craziness going through so one day I've only like I said I don't at that stage I'd only seen my mother twice but I heard her voice every week the light and uh one day I was stopped in Cal I hadn't been back to Cal for years and I just happened to be walking down the street and this lady called out and said, Michael. And I looked and I sort of looked at her and she says, it's your mother, you know? And I said, yeah, like, I know, but I didn't know, <laughs> but yeah, I know. <laughs> and she said, I want you to come home with me. Um, this is the woman, you know, who gave birth to me. This is the woman who once a week would we'd ring each other and she'd tell me about Jesus and the day I met her I was really angry with some people and I was angry at myself and I was just an angry man who didn't feel like he belonged anywhere I was starting to feel like this is crazy and so in 1997 I ran into my mum and I went out to her house I don't know what happened but the flickering light went out and this darkness came and I pushed my mother against the wall and put a knife to her throat and I, I didn't I realised that something wasn't right and something from behind grabbed my hand and I dropped the knife and I ran jumped in the car and I you know, I, I was just, it was an awakening because even though I didn't see that light had gone and the darkness was there, I actually went back to Melbourne and I stood. The people I had joined up with, these are people you usually can't walk away from. They're, they're the ones who decide whether you live, whether you die, when you can retire, when you can't, and how it works. So I went to my boss and my boss, he's in the middle, and they have four people on each side. And I pled my case and just, um, I didn't realise, but my mum had rang my boss. And, uh, and I stood before these men, and I think I spoke for about an hour to them. And then I was told to go and wait outside and have a coffee and, and things like that. And... Um, then I was called back in and they said, because of your loyalty, Mike, and because of your honesty, we're going to let you go. And I was, the relief <laughs> was amazing, you know, because usually you can't walk from these people. And uh, then my boss, who is the big boss of everything, he came up and he said, your mother rang me. And I thought, oh, no, you know, he's... And he said, there is a man back in Perth, Michael. His name is Dr. George O'Neill. I want you to go up to Sydney to the house because we lived in, we had a house in Melbourne and a house in Sydney. And he says, and on that bench, you'll find 
a packet of something and I want you to take it with you. So I went to Sydney and I opened it up and it was a whole, it was money to pay for George and that, but I still had this heroin habit at that stage. So there was even a little bit of powder there to keep me going. So <laughs> this is the interesting part. The light was flickering again because my mother was still ringing me once a week or I was ringing her. And I decided, okay, so I picked up this package, I jumped in the car and I never, ever, ever pick up hitchhikers, ever. And on the side of the road, just out of Sydney, there was these two girls and a guy and they were hot. I mean, not hot as in good looking hot, well, they were right, but hot. <laughs> it was summer. And they, so I loaded up their car and this girl, she had a guitar and I said, oh, you're probably better to put that in the back seat between you and your friends and, and then the bloke sat in the front. And they, we talked, you know, they were from, two, the two girls were from England, he was from France, and I said, oh, yeah, where have you been? And they said they'd been up to the Gold Coast, and, you know, they were travelling around, and I went, oh. I said, I'll just say you no. There's, um, sometimes the radio dies out. I don't carry tapes or anything, so, you know, it might be a bit boring. And they, I didn't think anything of it, and they said, yeah, no worries. So we're going along and we're driving, and they seem like nice people. And I, I said, oh, there you go, I'll have to turn the radio off, we can't get a radio. And this girl says, it's all right, I'll sing to you. And I went, okay, you've got a guitar, you must sing. She started singing this song that goes, I love you, Lord, and I live. And I'm thinking, wow, and I pulled over. <laughs> actually slammed the brakes on almost. And, and looked at them and went, are you Christians? And they went, Yes! I went, okay. <laughs> so, I never used to stop at motels or anything on the Nullarbor or stop anywhere. But once they told me they were Christian, they were telling me about a festival they were going to and, and, and just in my head. And I thought, oh, man. So I pulled over and even paid for a motel for the night so I could have a break away from them. Because <laughs> in my head... So, to keep the peace, I said, look, I'll go. I'll go to your festival, whatever it is. Oh, yes, Mike, it's going to be an enlightening time and you wait, God's going to do magnificent things for you. I had this bloke beside me reading daily devotions or something and I'm thinking, what is going on <laughs> in my life? So we got to, I think we were just out of Northern, just down near York, onto a, a big property and there was, I don't know how many people, there was thousands, but thousands of young people and I thought wow you know so I'm standing in the middle or at the back really but more in the middle of people all around us and um band was good everything was cool you know I didn't mind that and uh this man walked out I can't remember his name exactly but he came out and he was about to speak and he says I can't speak there's someone here I need to talk to and I'm thinking, oh, yeah, you know, like this, here we go, he's trying to suck the people in, like this. And um, he's wandering through the crowd and people were putting their hands up and he says, no, 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 no. Anyway, from probably to the back wall there, he comes down and he sees me. And then it was like Moses, you know, when he broke the water open like that, people just moved 
And I was there. And he went, you, if you would give your heart to God, you will be a great soldier in the Lord's work. And I thought, my mother put you up to this. <laughs> I'm looking around, is this a trick? You know, is, what is going on? My, what? You know, my mother? And, you know, candid camera, what's going on? Type thing. And so after that, I just went, oh, yeah, all right. And I didn't think much of it. And I went to, to George O'Neill, who, who was my, you know, to me, he was my saviour from this disease of heroin addiction. And um, I went through rapid detox and I had no one to look after me. And he looked after me. And, and he said to me at the end, when I finally came out of this stupor of what I'd been in, I can only cure the physical element, Mike, but I can't cure the mental element. I needed a long time to sort myself out. So I went back to Melbourne to my boss and we sat down and he said, the only place I can think of is Tasmania because we don't have a network there. And, and at that stage, I feel really blessed that Jesus must have been around because at that stage in 97, the gangland wars in Melbourne were starting and um, some of my mates had been murdered and it just wasn't a good time to be in Melbourne in the criminal element of it. So I was, he sent me to Tasmania to a shack in the middle of nowhere and I had no drive, no, no wheels to drive or anything and just a person coming once every couple of months, dropping food and uh, drinking that off to me. And uh, I realised once I'd started coming out of a stupor and reading the Bible a bit more and I was telling the pastor, <laughs> um, a lot of people put emphasis on Abraham about how he was going to sacrifice his son and before he sacrificed. But for me, I used to think, I used to love that Abraham was walking along with God to Sodom and Gomorrah and he was bartering about it, you know, and I thought maybe I can barter myself into heaven if I bring 10 people with me. And that's how I was thinking and, and things like that. So with that, I was, in, I was stuck there for 12 months and what it done was it, it actually made me read the Bible again and, and start to realise that maybe there's some truth in what my mother was saying about the light, about Jesus and how Jesus can change your life. And, and I thought, okay, well, I'll have a go. So I was picked up after 12 months and I was a better person. I'd put on a little bit of weight. But I'd lost my ability to write, to use a knife and fork. I've only learned to use a knife and fork in the last few years again because I was always on the run. So it was always takeaways or whatever and uh, so I was like a newborn child virtually just learning how to live again and how to eat and how to breathe and how to do this and, um, so I got I, I stayed in Tasmania and um, I started going to different churches but my biggest problem was I had a, still had this chip on my shoulder where I was looking for church and looking for God but I kept finding faults in the churches I was going to I even had a go at the Mormons church and uh, done all their things, but they were silly enough to ask me to come up and speak. 
and do my testimony. And I, and I turned around and I just said, look, it's plausible, some of it. I said, but Brigham Young's a murderer. And they just, like, in shock. And needless to say, I wasn't allowed to back at the Mormon church anymore because apparently Brigham Young was pretty big to them. But he was a murderer, you know. So I was going to these churches and I just kept finding faults. And, and during that time, I started to work in mental health, which is what I really wanted to do most of my life. It was a, a thing that I often thought about because, uh, um, you know, I was doing all that and I was studying and I was trying to find a church. And in that time, I ran into my partner today, Katrina, who... I feel like God put us in each other's path because her background wasn't as great, it wasn't that good as either, you know, and I believe that God put us here to find each other. So I had Katrina there and I was still trying to go to church and, but I kept finding faults and then I ultimately got to my dream job which was to work with the CAT team in Tasmania and after a lot of study and that and then... Uh, I finally got there and then in 2010 I fainted and um, they took a blood test and they told me that I had a disease called multiple myeloma which was a blood cancer leukemia and I thought I didn't know I don't know what I thought I just thought maybe it was the evil I used to think you know maybe I was so evil but that was my punishment because I know I walked with the devil. There's many things I haven't told you about in my life, but I should be dead. Where I told you the one where I blew up the mine, but I've been in shootouts. Um, I've had a gun held to my head um, where a, by a person of authority, a, a policeman, who was going to put me down the hole in the shaft and things like that. So it was a big awakening, you know, when I found out. But anyhow, back to the cancer. So they said, look, you need to go to Melbourne. So I left and went to Melbourne. And I, by this time, the gangland wars were almost over and that, and I, well, they were all and truly over in 2010. And um, so I went back over there and talked to me boss. And he said, we're gonna do this. And so for two years, I went for a treatment. And I was still looking for a church. I kept going to churches, but I kept finding these faults in the churches and then after two years in Melbourne most of my money was gone, my super was just about gone, the only thing we had was a house because it, it was costing me money to get all this treatment done and that and uh, the doctors came to me and said look you might as well go home, Have you got, where do you come from? I said Western Australia and they said go home to your family and I didn't really think I had a family but I rang my mum and she said, just come home. And I thought, I didn't know if I could do it. And so we came home and um, as we were pulling up to the, her house, I noticed all these cars were at the front. The light was becoming like this, was coming further in and uh, I seen all these cars at the front of my mum's house and I thought oh no she's bought her church here and things like this and 
And I pulled up. And as I'm getting out and I'm walking, this light, I don't know where it was coming from because the sun was over that way, but this light was coming this way. And as I walked around the corner, this light was so bright, I couldn't see, and I fell to my knees, and it was right in front of my mother. And I just said, Mum, I'm so sorry. Please forgive me for anything I've ever done to cause you hurt or pain. And I don't know. Her hand, I think it was her hand, her hand, maybe God's hand, and she just said, there's nothing to forgive. And just those three words, nothing to forgive, I, wow. <laughs> it felt like I was the prodigal son because not only that was my mum and my stepdad were there at that time and my sisters and their husbands and they're all Christians and their kids and their grandkids and my two daughters were there and my, a couple of my grandkids and like, it was just like being welcoming, welcomed home. And for the first time, I felt a sense of belonging and felt loved and, and there was no judgment or I didn't have to do anything to get that person's love or, or things like that. It was just, just me. So the light for me was my mum at that stage still and then I decided I'd go to church and I went to her church on the Sunday and as I went, it's quite funny, it's a bit bigger than this, but back then there was this big revelation that the earth was going to die in 2000 because of Y2K and computers were coming down. So there was a big overflow of people coming to the church. And I sat down with my mum and people actually got up and moved to the other side of the church. And my mum and this pastor got up and said, we don't understand why he's doing that. This is the same man you've been praying for for 40 odd years. But to them, I was still that evil person. It didn't really bother me. <laughs> well, I say that now, but it probably did. So I said to my mother, look, I'm going to go and find this pastor from prison who I used to talk to. And uh, I found him at the Church of Christ in, in Cowan. And, that, and he started to teach me about things in my life. Uh, one thing I find hard still today is I, I find it hard to forgive myself for lots of things that I've done in my life. Um, my very best mate from, we were five, grew up, he died in my arms when he was uh, 33 from a drug overdose and I just dragged him at the front and put him in the gutter and just rang an ambulance and said, there's some dead fella at the front. This is a guy I'd known all my life, you know. And it was just, I couldn't forgive myself. So this pastor helped me get through and I gave my heart to God just at the November of 2012. Um, and every day since then, I've come down here, we had a house in Cal, I still get... I'm still a bit funny, you know. <laughs> I um, still have lots of questions for God. I sit there, I actually, I don't know if I'm praying or what I'm doing. I'm actually like, I'm sitting next and we're having a conversation between each other. And that's how I am with God, you know. And things like that. And I started to realise what my mother reckoned she already knew is that 
I have got a soft heart and I do care about what happens to people and, and I don't know why I went into this darkness to come out of the light. But, yeah, I was told to go home anyway, as I said, in 2012. They said, you know, we don't know, you might have a couple of years, five years, we don't know. So I came down to Perth and I was looking for a church. I needed a church and... Um, this was the church I found and uh, I'm eternally grateful to all yous for I'm sorry if I'm a bit standoffish in that because I still have a habit of putting people up here and myself down there because I don't feel I'm worthy to even be in the presence of God. I haven't been baptised yet because of that reason. I don't think I'm worthy enough. I don't think I could stand before God and that's how I think and that's just I realise there's a, a Satan and there's God and there's Satan now and, and that's how he tricks me and that's why I don't talk to many people in the church I, if I'm at the back there I sit on my own in the couch because I just don't think I'm worthy enough to be here and to do that um, I've thought about going back over east and pulling some of my mates out of what they're in and but I'm not strong enough to do that. So, you know, I'm just grateful to be here in the light. Jesus has shown me the way. And uh, through that faith of starting to come here and that, there's been days I've been very sick with chemo and radiotherapy and injections and all kinds of things. And then in August of this year, something, I don't know what happened, I was praying... In the morning, I've learned how to pray in the mornings and I was learning how to pray at night just by myself and that. And I said to God, you know, I just, I'm tired. I was so tired of chemo, I was so tired of um, radiotherapy, I was tired of the injections, I was just tired of life. And I think once I'd done that, the light again came in front of me and then I think it was at the end of August, beginning of September of this year, I'd been in remission a couple of months before then, or a few months before then, but now I'm completely cancer-free. And um, it's not bad for someone who was given a death sentence when he first got it and things like that. So for me, my mother, I realised, was the vessel that Jesus was using to get to me because I'd completely done a 360 now and... Um, I'm just plodding along. I still, I still think stupid things. I have holes in my jeans here. Believe me, I own more than this one pair. But I have 15 pairs of jeans and all of them I've put a hole in. So my mother and Katrina refuse to buy me jeans anymore because I put holes in them. And it might sound silly, but the reason I do that is I think stupid things. Like I'll drive along or I'm in the passenger and Katrina's driving and I'll see an armour guard and I automatically, my head starts to go and I think Katrina sees it in my head because she's hit me a few times and I think, I wonder how much money they have. I wonder how many people I'd need. I wonder if I could do it this way. So what happens is my thumb goes to a hole like that and then Jesus says to me, wake up you stupid man. 
and that's how I am, you know, and I realise, but it's okay to, to think things, just don't act them out sometimes. And, <laughs> but it, I just can't help the way I am, so I guess that's the best way to describe my life at the moment, but I do know that Jesus is real and he's done miracles in my life. I have a diary still, I still write a diary. I don't know how many books I've got, I've got about a hundred and something books according to my mum and her place and that. So um, I'm writing a book called Flickering Lights, which is, goes into much more detail about my life and things like that. But I, I just want you to know that if you ever feel like Jesus isn't in your life, try and get that, if you've got that flickering light, try and get the light to stay on. Because if you have the light on and you know the love of Jesus... If I can be saved, anyone can be saved. So I will get baptised and I will be baptised this summer. But <laughs> so, in finishing, <laughs> I'm not very good, but in finishing, Philippians, now I've lost it. Ah. Oh. 13 to 16, right. Philippians, sorry, because I'm blind in one eye. That, that's a whole other story. <laughs> so Philippians chapter 2, verses 13 to 16 say, um, where am I? For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to this good purpose. Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe. As you hold out the word of life, in order that I may boast on the day of Christ, but I did not run or labour for nothing. So I think that's pretty much about me. <laughs> you know, I, um, I don't know where my life's going to take me. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't even know what's happening tomorrow. But I don't worry about it anymore. I just have to go a day at a time. So I hope you've got something out of that, out of my life. But I, I will leave you with this note. As I said, my boss, he became like my adopted dad. He really looked after me. He saved me from my biological dad. Um, my mother now rings him once a week, every Friday, and tells him about the gospel because he's a very strict Roman Catholic and uh, believes that he goes to confession and and things like that. But he's talking now to my mum and they talk about God and he talks about this. I don't know if you'll ever go to the Lord with mum, but that's how my mum is and I realise that my mum is just a workhorse for God and she's been a workhorse for God all her life and she showed me the light. So thank you. That's about all I have to say. So we know that the light is piercing, but the light is comfort. The light is something that breaks through like a laser and pursues us beyond belief, but it is a light that is comfort to us as well. And so we are thankful for the light that is in Christ, 
that has shined brightly, that has transformed Michael's life. And, and, and let me say this. While he has a dynamic story, everyone that the Father pursues has that same dynamic story. We were all dead, but we are now alive. We were all in darkness, but now we're in light. So we might not have some of the, the, the great little antidotes that Michael has, but you have antidotes in your life. Because as I say over and over again, each one of us like the little emperor me sitting on our hearts. And that little emperor me gets us in trouble all the time. So let me pray. Thank you, Father, for my. Thank you for his life. Thank you for your work. We thank you for his mom. We pray that you'll be with her right now. She got a little sick this week, and so we pray that you'll put healing on her. We pray that you'll be with her conversations that are happen every Friday. Uh, and that uh, the gentleman that she has on that other end of the line will hear your loving pursuit for him. That it's not duty or obligation, but it's the work that you've done and you've accomplished that saves him and sets him free. And that he's not done too much to not be forgiven either. Father, we thank you for that. Just be with her in that. It's in your name we pray. Amen.